Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 92, Buddhist Studies in the West. We continue our discussion this week with Dr. Jeffrey Hopkins, this time discussing the importance of academic study of Buddhism here in the West. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks listeners. We're back with another episode. And today we have a very special guest at the studio, actually in the flesh, which is a nice treat for us because usually people are virtual. We have Dr. Jeffrey Hopkins here today. And uh we are live streaming this right now, and some of you might have seen Jeffrey's talk at Shambhala Center, which was just a few minutes ago. So we're actually kind of busy today, and Jeffrey's been so kind to join us right after a, a very wonderful and funny talk. Jeffrey is Emeritus Professor of Tibetan Studies at University of Virginia, a very uh, prominent PhD program in Tibetan Buddhist Studies. If you see a lot of books at the bookstores from PhD folks in Tibetan Buddhism Studies, there's a good chance they went to UVA or they're at UVA. So he was there from 1973 to 2005 for quite a long time there. And if you've read any of Jeffrey's books or you're familiar with him, he's written a lot of books, probably one of the most prolific authors I've seen in the field. So he's has over 40 books, you said, right? 41st is coming out in February. Excellent. And your newest book is Songkhapa's Final Exposition of Wisdom. Yes. And would you say a little bit about what the focus of that book is or the or that teachings it presents the topic of the realization of emptiness mm -hmm. uh, from two of songoba's last if from his last two works on the view of emptiness emptiness refers to the absence of a misimagined status of things we see things as existing far more concretely than they actually are. Mm. And so the absence of that concreteness is called emptiness. Emptiness sounds as if it means nothingness, or that persons and things don't exist at all. Rather, it means they don't exist in the concrete way that we see them. Mm. And because we see them in an excessively reified or concrete way, we build unnecessary counterproductive emotions based on that misperception. Mm. So it draws us into trouble. So realizing emptiness is seen as a way out of trouble. Mm. But it's not easy. Mm. So there are long <laughs> books on the topic. Is this a long one or is it a... It's uh, 500 pages, something like that. We call it that long? Uh, it's somewhat, yeah. <laughs> Maybe medium for you. Huh? <laughs> and uh, yes. And at the end is a section that compares the views of Tsongkhapa and Doboba. Doboba is a person of the 14th century whom Tsongkhapa was seeking to refute. My aim in putting the two together in one book is not to refute one or the other, but to highlight the difference of the views and thereby make each view clearer. Actually, I would like you to maybe speak a little bit more to that. You mentioned something about that in your talk. You made one point of when you write, uh, translate a text to 
give its due course or mm. uh, within its own system, not to bring in other views or comparisons. Yes. And then you said you like to also uh, write books where you do a comparison of the two. And what's the benefit of both of those approaches? Mm. I translated the very long Mountain Doctrine, which is Dobova's text on reality, and it became the foundational text, the main text of the Jonangba school in Tibet. And in doing that translation, it would have been possible to relate it to other views by other schools. But I wanted that book to just present the Jonang view. Mm -hmm. And then given that I had already done work on Songoba's view, now I could compare the two. This is particularly relevant because Songoba just came after Doboba. Doboba was very popular, and Songoba chose to refute him, but not by name. But uh-huh. having done Doboba's mountain doctrine, uh-huh. now I could see in Songoba's later text that I was doing here uh, how he was refuting Doboba. You know, it was just clear before my eyes. So I could present first, well, after giving the translation of Tsongkhapa's text, present Dobobo's views, and then around certain quotations, Mm -hmm. and then present Tsongkhapa's refutation of them without choosing sides. Mm. And so from a practitioner standpoint, if I were to pick up that comparison, what's the benefit for, for me to do that, to see those two compared Is it a purely academic one? I'm guessing not. It's not just academic. By comparing them, each of them should become clearer. Ah, that makes sense. And maybe I'd ask you about this as well. Um, I don't know all your 40 books, but a lot of them tend to be um, what some people might call heavier texts. They come from an academic perspective. Um, I do have Maps of the Profound. I bought it for Mm. our Mind and Its World Mm. course. And it's very heavy duty uh, Mm, for the mm, average person. mm. Um, Where does this fit in within Western Buddhism, uh, these translations where um, the average person is not going to pick up maps with the profound necessarily, but should they, or should, how do those, should those texts be presented? Or if a person finds your book in the store, what do you, what do you expect them to do or the relationship with that? I've found over the course of the last, well, let's see, I started practicing and studying Tibetan Buddhism in 1963, so that's 45 years. I've found over that period that some people have read the heavier books Mm. and have really liked them. Yeah. And they'll stop me on the street, and they don't, they've just, somebody has pointed out, oh, that's Jeffrey Hopkins. And uh, there's no star quality, because, you know, I'm not on the screen, Mm. and nowadays I'm not, translating on a stage uh-huh. so people haven't you know there's a certain star quality you get when the lights are bright right <laughs> and uh, they'll just come up and from their hearts say how much it's helped them and i've been amazed lately at how many people have come up and uh, said this mm. and this became the measure of success for me mm. you see originally when i published you get a contract you think wow got a contract mm-hmm. the book comes out wow yeah book came out <laughs> and then you get a tally yeah there's not much money right but it's not the money it's that you get how many books were sold oh 100 people bought the book uh-huh. 200 maybe a yeah. thousand 
And it's like, wow, that's success. But it's not. It's a success if it helps the person in their mind, yeah. attitudes, mm. in their relationships. And then that's very tenuous. How do you figure that out? And lately, so many people have come up and told me that uh, the, some of the books have been helpful that oh, I've thought, well, well, that meets my measure of success. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it is. Uh, that's uh, very similar to what we do with the show. We just had uh, met a person for the first time at the Translators Conference, and he said he went back to graduate school in large part because of our episodes we've done. Uh, and that was really touching. Yeah, it's like yeah. success. You know? yes. It doesn't matter how many downloads we have mm. or don't have. So yeah. That's really wonderful. Um, with what you just said about um, uh, your more intense books, when we spoke with Punlam Prempeche, we were talking about his efforts at Natarta Institute and um, a more organized and thorough study of Buddhism in the West. And he used a term called coffee table dharma. And he says he likes it a lot. Mm. But that's like one level where a person yeah. has a, a lighter book on Buddhism mm. and the dharma and they study mm. that. But he says people need to go further. And so maybe that relates somewhat to the work that you do. Is It's not necessarily the coffee table dharma. It's that taking the next step further. Yes, most of the work that I do is, I guess, a step further. I've done a few books for the Dalai Lama that are... Uh, it's a little hard to say coffee table, right, but right. Uh, are more popular. Yes. And uh, so that, that they're in that first first class, I guess. Right, right. But the ones I do for him are also full of technical detail, but aimed for accessibility. Right, I would agree with that. I mean, his books are very eloquent and mm. and simple, but yet has everything you need there. That His first book, The Art of Happiness, is what got me on the path, actually. Yeah. So. That's a book uh, that really opened up a, well, shall I call it market? Uh, a readership? Yeah. It's a better word. Right. <laughs> uh, for, for the books that I do. Because it was written by somebody that was mixing us psychotherapy and Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And it made a marvelous approach for a lot of people. Yeah. And then if they wanted another book on a little different level from mm -hmm. His Holiness, mm -hmm. then that's more where, where my books are. Right. And so he opened up a market, a readership for the books that I do. Yeah, gateway. It was really nice. Oh, that makes sense. Could you say a little bit about what you see between Buddhism studied in Asia, traditional context, the intellectual or analytical mm. study? and what you've seen in uh, the West. Now, obviously, you already kind of alluded to the point that you may be in a different position than uh, maybe some academics who study mm. the Dharma in that way, but are there differences that, in the way we approach the, the study intellectually? Yes. yes. What, what are those? Well, in one system in Tibet, there's, generally speaking, a 20-year period of rigorous study which would be like from the college level, MA, PhD. It's very long, mm -hmm. and it's done largely through debate. You get instruction from a teacher, mm -hmm. debate twice a day, sometimes three, sometimes three, three times a day. Um, and it's much longer. Mm. That's the main difference. Mm -hmm. But by having that length of time, mm -hmm. you can go 
that much more deeply into philosophic issues, practice issues, and so forth. Mm -hmm. What's the current landscape for academic study of Buddhism and Dharma in the West? A lot of people may not be too familiar with what's going on there. It can mm. sometimes feel isolated if you're outside of that. Um, University of Virginia, University of um, Southern California at uh, Santa Barbara for Tibetan studies. Uh -huh. uh, University of Michigan, Columbia, University of Wisconsin. There must be more than I'm not thinking of. Yeah. Emory. Um, so it's quite alive. Great. But you can't get, you might get a faculty of just one person, oh. maybe two. At Virginia, there are three in Tibetan studies. Mm -hmm. Whereas like in the transplanted monasteries, that means from the Tibetan refugees in India, you know, you'll have a great many teachers. Mm. So... Mm -hmm. It's on a, an entirely different scale. Right. And it seems, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with some of the programs you mentioned and who's there, and it seems like there are a number of folks out there um, in the programs leading those programs who are both academics and practitioners. But I wondered if that's always the case or there's how common that really is. It's not always the case. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes... Professors who are Buddhist hide the fact that they are Buddhist. And sometimes people are very open about it. I was always very open about mm -hmm. it. In my department, one of the chairs said that it's perfectly fine. Now, of course, we had a number of professors of Christianity who were Christians. So it would have been a double standard yeah. if you couldn't have been a Buddhist yeah. and a professor of Buddhism. Right, that was my assumption. <laughs> But but that kind of double standard will take place with minorities. Mm. So mm -hmm. it's not, I mean, it's irrational, wrong, but it happens because of being a minority. Right. Mm. Do you think it's uh, better or uh, helpful that an academic's also a practitioner? It can be helpful. What people might fear, and that would be true of being a Christian or Jew or whatever, that uh, your allegiance to a particular system would blind you to some of the, um, blind you even to nuances of the system, mm. blind you to exaggerations that exist in the system, mm. Mm -hmm. uh, blind you such that you couldn't give a good, vigorous examination of the material that you're teaching mm -hmm. can be a big problem. That's a really good point. I really enjoy um, at Naropa having Phil Stanley and uh, Lama Tempa as the two primary teachers because mm -hmm. I get a different um, approach to the subjects. And I'm always continuously fascinated with Phil when he brings in this perspective that seems to come strongly from an academic per, mm -hmm. uh, uh, perspective. And uh, I'm, I always find myself, I didn't realize that, because he'll say something that, mm. you know, we all accept that this has been the case forever and ever since mm. Buddhism mm. began, mm. and it's really not. There's all these nuances and development, and mm. it's quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It can be a uh, an outlook through which you can notice some facets that you wouldn't notice otherwise. 
just as being from within the system will allow you to notice uh, some facets because you're trying to put it into practice. When you try to put it into practice, you see the troubles, the obstacles, uh-huh. and so forth. Have you found your academic uh, study helpful for your practice and in what ways? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Huh. I mean, for me, it's the two are not separate. Ah. I mean, occasionally I'll get too carried away with some minutia, uh, but my aim is practice. Uh, in the sense of trying to experience the topic that I'm looking into, mm-hmm. not just leaving it as somebody else's experience or somebody else's claim. Experience it as much as I can. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, if, if I'm writing about enlightenment, I might like to have a little insight into enlightenment, mm-hmm. but I cannot write from the point of view of enlightenment. Uh, right. It can be self-deceptive uh, to talk about high states of mind. You know, you can talk about the process of concentration, uh-huh. the problems with concentration, mm-hmm. or the problems in developing concentration, I mean, how to counteract those problems, and the stages that you go through when you counteract them. Mm-hmm. And you can get so used to thinking, oh, yes, at this point you do this, and then you do that. Uh-huh. You can kind of think you've done it. and you haven't. Uh-huh. You're still a jerk, you know? <laughs> Your mind's wandering all over the place. Right. And it's said that the biggest problem for a scholar to develop concentration is arrogance. And it's that sort of arrogance. Like, I know, I know how to do that. I know what that is. But you've only learned the steps. Mm. Those steps are called the pleasant articles of yoga. Mm. That means if you learn them beforehand, then when they happen, you might have a chance to enact them. Mm-hmm. But that's all they are. Right. But they can be very, very helpful. But otherwise, after a while, you think, oh, yeah, and when you go to this stage, that happens. You get in that stage, that happens. And you you think you've been talking about the real thing. Mm. But the conceptual layout can draw you into the experience itself. Uh-huh. It becomes like a blueprint. Reading a blueprint, if you use your imagination, draws you into the building. Mm. And something that Phil has mentioned uh, before is he sees Western Buddhists as sometimes being reluctant or adverse to intellectual study of Buddhism, and they're just more interested in the meditation. And, of course, you were just mentioning some possible pitfalls or traps Mm -hmm. in the intellectual study. I'm wondering what your opinion is on that. Do you find Westerners to be on one side or the other? Oh, sometimes. Sometimes when the the intellectual side gets going, you can't set it down. Uh. And even... You'll understand something, but then you'll go on to the next topic rather than sticking with it right. and letting it seep into your mind. Mm-hmm. And then for practitioners who don't study, sometimes they don't know that they're actually involved in a problem of meditation and think that it's good meditation. Uh. And the two have to be balanced. But it's said if you have to choose between practical application and learnedness, learnedness, 
you must choose practical application. Ah, interesting. You have to choose. Mm. Best not to have to choose. I suppose that's one of the primary reasons why in the West we would benefit from having structures in place for people to go through the path, much like in Tibet, you know, if you're in the uh, Shedra program, so you have, you study this and you do these practices and it just goes through a progression where you don't have less to worry about about um, do I need to choose something? What am I doing? Is it the right thing? Mm, it mm. seems to me that Westerners are often maybe in that point of ambiguity because mm. they don't have a structured place to go. I don't know. I think uh, that's true. Yeah. It's certainly very helpful for me to have some sort of system laid out for me. You then pick up a lot of background. In the end, of course, you have to do it yourself. Right. I asked this question of Phil. Definitely want to ask it of you. How do you see the academic route of uh, studying Buddhism as a way to get that structure? So if a person has the desire, I want to study Dharma more intensely, as intense as I can get, we have a few options. You can go across abroad, but if they look around in the West, United States, for example, how many places do you have? The university stands out as an option. What do you think about that motivation to go to university uh, if that's your primary motivation to a PhD program or a master's program? It can be very helpful. It was helpful for me to go to the University of Wisconsin for, for graduate studies. At that time, I considered Wisconsin's program to be the best. Mm. I had spent five years in a Tibetan and Mongolian monastery in New Jersey, in the flatlands of New Jersey. Mm. And... That gave me a good background so that when I went to graduate school, it couldn't completely absorb my mind and change my priorities. My priorities were set, and the rigors of graduate school didn't shake me out of those priorities. Mm. Uh, but what can happen, it can easily happen that the rigors of a graduate program are so great that someone who has an intention to practice and has practiced will give it up at some point during the program. Mm -hmm. I consider that to be one of the failures of the program that I set up, mm -hmm. um, that some people came to it practicing and left not practicing. Mm -hmm. Is that due mostly to the rigors of the program or from what they expected of the program? It's due to the rigors of the program. I guess so. <laughs> it's so much work. Yeah. So it's overloaded with requirements. Uh -huh. There's, of course, no requirement to meditate. Um, mm. So you're not helped in terms of the structure of the program that way. And the community is not such that it helps you to find the time to do some meditation. And when you think about it, to do five minutes of meditation every day, to find five minutes, just about everybody can do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I think there may be a frazzle factor in most or all academic programs. Mm -hmm. When you look at it from the point of view of maintaining Buddhist practice, Although I, I mean, I suppose I'm arrogant when I say I was able to maintain enough practice during graduate school. 
led five years before going to graduate. You had some momentum. How likely do you think it is that university programs will include that first-person perspective, that the meditation, the actual practice? Well, a Buddhist university like like Naropa right. or Maitreba Institute in Portland, they're structuring meditation retreats and so forth uh-huh. into the program. Is that not right? Am I not right? No, that's right. Yeah, Naropa, Naropa. We have analytical meditation corresponding with pretty much every course almost. Yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Alan Wallace's work? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what you thought about um, his efforts to create the contemplative studies within universities. It's great. Yeah. And he's the person to do it um, because he he knows how to interface with people in the the academy. Mm -hmm. He knows the vocabulary of physics, of psychology, and uh, several several disciplines that I don't. Mm. And uh, he has a, a very nice presence that puts people at ease. Mm-hmm. And this is a very ripe time for that to happen. He's definitely the person to do it. Wonderful. Yeah, we've been able to speak to him a couple of times and mm. absolutely wonderful what he's doing, the Shamatha Project in particular. And we kind of hit on this a little bit, but maybe we just hit it on it more explicitly. Um, what do you think the university's role is in establishing a Western Buddhism? Or obviously universities themselves aren't going to be taking some conscious effort to, hey, we need to have a, mm. a Western Buddhism. But a lot of the people like yourself involved in those programs are thinking that and are trying to do that. So do you think uh, universities are, are playing or will continue to play a certain role in helping that come about? Well, perhaps it happens naturally just by the fact that they're asking someone to teach courses on on Buddhist studies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But especially if people do some contemplation, uh, even more so. Mm -hmm. At the the University of Virginia, I felt because it was a state-sponsored university, I should not lead or ask students to meditate or even provide the opportunity. Um, but someone asked the president of the university about this. Said, "This the, the I I know the president, and this person knew the president." So mm-hmm. Jeffrey says uh, he shouldn't be doing meditation in class. Mm-hmm. President said Jeffrey can do whatever he wants. <laughs> Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. 
After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.